Well, good morning, church family. It is a joy to open up God's Word together to continue in our series called Unwavering, where we've been looking at the book of Acts, the gospel and the life of the early church. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so fun to to be looking at God's Word together to see the impact of Jesus's resurrection on the early church. How did it animate them? How did it transform them? And as we approach this text, our hope and goal is that as we see these answers, that we too would be animated by the gospel, that we too would be transformed by these characteristics that we see described of the early church, that we would be changed from the inside out, upside down. And as we do that, let's bow our heads together and pray. Mighty and merciful Father, would you open our eyes this morning to see your power, to see your grace? Would you help us to hear with clarity your truth, what it means for our lives? Would you show us our Savior Jesus? Because we desperately need to see him. Lord, we know we can't do this on our own, so we ask all of this by your Spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If I only gave you a few words to describe Christians in Northern Virginia, what would you say? I actually want to hear a few words. Maybe this would be a good afternoon conversation at lunch, kids, teenagers. What three words would you use? What words would your neighbors use? And then do these words line up with God's call for the church? What are some words that that come to your mind? Pro-life, okay. Busy. Loving, quiet. Am I hearing these? Generous, okay. Hidden. Educated, all right. I asked this question to a few of my friends this week, and generally these responses, which I think even hearing them now, fell along two categories. I'll call them the first maybe hopeful categories, and the second even skeptical. So some of the hopeful words that I heard, dedicated, generous, real, humble. Maybe if you were here with us last week and you heard Kim Eisler's testimony video, hospitable, community-oriented. These are hopeful words that we, we would hope would describe Christians. But of course, on the negative side of things, we perhaps would hear words like judgmental, box checkers, hypocrites. And for us, the Bible is really clear about the marks that should describe the early church. The problem is that at different times and at different moments, we might be some of each, some of these hopeful words and some of these more skeptical ones. But as I hope you'll see with me as we look at the the text this morning, that God loves an authentic, vulnerable, and tenacious community. And in our text, we find this remarkable description of how the church ought to look like. And then one simple, ordinary example 
when it is. So let's dive into our text together. Look with me, if you would, at verse 32, the first verse in this passage. What do you find remarkable about this community? It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The biggest thing that jumped out to me about this community is that their hearts and their minds were united. So this is the first mark that we should see in the church, that the church ought to be a unified people. The church is at its best when it is going in the same direction. When there's a common mission and vision that are shared for themselves, for their community, and that they're dedicated to be going in that same direction together. And I I couldn't help but hearing Coach Taylor's words from Friday Night Lights in my head, clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. That's right. There's something about unity that brings people together in a shared mission and vision. And in the fall, we spent some time looking at Jesus's high priestly prayers, it's often called in John 17, where you might remember he asks, not just for these, but also those who will believe in me through the word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus, in one of his final prayers, his last day, asks that his people would be one, that they would be unified. And this is a beautiful picture of the early church, and it's not something to be overlooked because Satan would like nothing less than to divide the church. You know, it's one of his most effective tactics. I mean, even since Genesis 3, when the serpent said to Eve, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? There's division early on. There's a real struggle for good and for evil. And honestly, it doesn't really have much to do with this current moment. It's as old as creation. And Kerry Newhoff is a Christian leader and thinker, and he wrote a blog post called The Devil's Five Favorite Strategies. And do you want to guess what the number one strategy of the devil is? It's division. And he says that the greatest mistake that you can make with evil is to overestimate or underestimate its influence. And Paul, if you remember in Galatians 5, he really describes perfectly what a divided church looks like. You might remember he describes hatred and discord, jealousy, division, factions, envy. But instead, brothers and sisters, we are called to be united in our friendship and our purpose, embodying the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul goes on to say in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, so that our neighbors, our co-workers, our, our friends, 
might see that the bonds that we have with one another transcend race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status, national and political identities. Would our friends, our neighbors, our community say that about us as a church family? And if that sounds really hard to accomplish, it's because it's true. We can't accomplish it on our own. It is a gift of the Spirit that works in us as a church. God, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, said these words, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put in you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A Christian is to be marked by unity, not by divisiveness. The church ought to be a unified people, and this comes through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. The second mark that we see in the church is that the church ought to be a people with a message. People with a message. Look at verse 32 again. It describes these people, that they were believers. And it almost goes without saying, but this community had come to believe in Jesus. Believe that God cared for them enough that He sent His Son to enter into the world to pay the debt of our sin to redeem us from that sin, that we might be reconciled to Him. And this this belief in Jesus changed everything for them and for this community. And, And church, we as a community, it looks different than you know, other organizations and clubs that we might join and are a part of. Because church is not a decision that we make or an organization that we join. It is a community of belief about who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And so that means church is more than just meeting together once a week. But it's about being a family all of the rest of the days of the week, united together in Christ by God. And how does God do that? How does He unite us? Verse 33, look with me. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So how does God do this in us? It's through the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ powerful message. One commentator wrote about this passage. It was the powerful preaching of the gospel that motivated the earliest Christians to generosity. It wasn't specifically preaching about money or impassioned exhortations from leaders to share their possessions. The gospel message of Jesus Christ inspired a culture of self-giving and love. The church ought to be a people with a message. But as that quote captures, it's that message that motivates Christians to be a people of generous care. And so that's the third mark that we see resembling the early church, that they were a people of generous care. And so this is where we get to the end of verse 32, this statement that says they had everything in common that no one claimed his possessions as his own. 
And I wonder what your immediate response is to those words. Are you like, you know, that just sounds impractical. Or maybe inspiring. Or maybe that that looks beautiful. Or maybe that sounds like communism. The early church was known for their radical generosity. We even read in verse 34 that some of them sold their houses and land to give to the poor among themselves. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had any need. And I want to be clear about what authenticity is because we are going to talk about what generosity is, but authenticity is more than about giving because the gospel of grace is first about receiving this good news. And so I want you to hear this morning that it is incredibly authentic for you to express your needs as well because the gospel says that we are all needy people. And it takes great vulnerability to admit that we have need. And the truth is, as a church, we can only be generous, as generous as the needs are made known to us. So if you are in need, please let us know. We as a church want to meet your needs. The care for the needy is one of the hallmarks of the church. This is Luke's vision This is one of the central pieces of Jesus' ministry. And this sharing of fellowship and purpose is what leads those in the church who have means to give to those who are in need. And so what we're saying here, those who have means, we're not talking about selling the shirt off of your back here, but if you have been blessed, give out of your abundance. So do you have more than you need? Give it away. Practically, what it sounds like here is that there was a common fund that was to be distributed to meet the needs of those in the church community. Does that sound familiar to you? I hope it does, because that sounds a lot like what our deacons fund is, which even in the past 10 months has risen over $150,000 more than it had in the previous year. Your generosity is amazing. And the goal for our deacons fund is just to distribute it to those who are in need. And you know, we're really not that clever as a church. We're just trying to follow the patterns that were set in the early church, in the book of Acts that we see. But of course, the challenge for us is that we like our stuff. I like my possessions. And so a great heart question for us all is, how are we giving to those in our church who have need? Are we giving generously? Are we giving sacrificially? Or are we giving begrudgingly? Measured? Even cautiously? The Bible would call us to be a people of radical generosity. For many in our congregation, 
money is not their scarcest resource. And so I'd encourage you to extend this thought of generosity beyond just how much is in your bank account. We say often that the most valuable and perhaps scarcest resource of our people is time. And so an equal question applies here. How are we giving not only of our treasure, but of our time and our talent to those who are in need as well? Nothing more than radical generosity is pictured here. And I joked earlier, but this is not what some have referred to as early communism. Just a few quick comments on that, because you'll see that giving was voluntary, and it was not compelled by the government. In the book of Acts, you'll see, too, that people still owned personal property and possessions. No one had any obligation to sell their property and give it away. You only have to look a few verses after this one to see uh, in chapter 5, Ananias was told, did these lands, these proceeds not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your disposal? So the question is not that there was an obligation to give, but that people give generously, motivated by the love of Christ that is in them. The goal of generosity is that the needs of our church would be met. And that has always been the hallmark of the community of faith. Listen to Deuteronomy 15. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. The early church was known for their sacrificial giving, and that generosity changed their world. And oh, that we would continue to be a people of radical generosity. You know, I know our church is an incredibly generous church. And there are opportunities for us to give more. I want to just give a few practical examples of ways that we are generous as a church. And maybe if those things don't describe you, you would hear them as opportunities for you to consider giving. Did you know that some of our elders mortgage their homes to be able to pay for the building that we worship in today? How many of us have open bedrooms in our homes? I know many of you have hosted or are hosting fellows. You welcome them into your family. It's an amazing ministry. If you have an open bedroom, we're always looking for more families, so you could very practically email John Kyle if that's something that the Lord would put on your heart. There are many young adults who are looking for a transition space as they're moving to the city, finding roommates, finding a place to be established. Imagine how eternity might look different if we mobilized the probably thousand extra bedrooms that we have in our church. I, told, uh, I came to this church, I was looking at the calendar seven years ago, and there was a family who welcomed me into their home as I was starting a job at the church trying to find my way and wasn't yet married. Jess and I were engaged to be married just six months later. So a, ch- a family in this church welcomed us 
in gave me a home. And it made all the difference for us to be able to establish our family here in this church. You give ridiculous amounts of money to our Thanksgiving offering each year. We, our church, it's amazing each year to see, even in this pandemic, how much our church has given to our Thanksgiving offering, to our deacons fund. At the end of the year, many of you give a charitable gift transfer by giving your appreciated stock to the church. It's an amazing gift to the church. That's that's an incredible way to do just what's pictured here in Acts, to sell some land that you have extra to be generous to the church. But students, maybe you're sitting here and thinking to yourself, well, none of those things describe me. I don't own any land. don't plan to for a long time. Well, again, think about your time. Are you good at math? Are you better at math than some of your friends? And would you be able to use some of those gifts and talents that God has given you to set up times to reach out to other youth and serve and love them in this way, giving of your gifts and talents and time and treasure. What about time? Could you consider mentoring an at-risk youth at Cornerstone School? You know, I have no doubt that our church will give over 100 pack-and-plays and car seats to assist in Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center. We do each year, and it is an incredible thing and an incredible opportunity for those of us who've maybe not yet given in that way. As many as have means, consider giving in these ways very practically to benefit those in our church and our community. Our church is incredibly generous, incredibly generous. And there are even more ways that we can learn as a church to be generous. When we recognize that we don't own our possessions, that we're actually stewards of the resources that God gives us, then we'll find it easier to let go of those possessions, to surrender them, to lay them down, as it were, at the feet of the apostles, to be distributed to each who has need. John Calvin, when he writes in his commentary hundreds of years ago, these words still ring true. We must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. So the question for us all is, does the inward reality of our heart match our outward generosity? Or the reverse, does the outward generosity of our giving, does it match the inward reality of our hearts? And our prayer is that it would continue to be so. May it be so. Luke gives us a powerful illustration of this ordinary discipleship. He gives us a picture of a a person who has been transformed by the resurrected power of Jesus And this is his introduction to our text, and it's a really important person. His name is Barnabas, a name which means the son of encouragement, a name that is apparently fitting for his generous character. 
And Barnabas is going to show up as a key figure later in the book of Acts. If you remember, he's the one who introduces Paul to the rest of the apostles after Paul's radical conversion. And we're told in verse 37, if you look there, that Barnabas sold a field that had belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at his apostles' feet. Luke is encouraging us really simply. He's encouraging his reader and therefore us also to consider giving in this way. By the way, if you want to see a picture of how God thinks about the opposite of authentic giving, I would encourage you to just read the next four verses when you get at home. You might hear or know the story of Ananias, which we don't have time to get into this morning. But you see the opposite of authentic giving is hypocrisy. And that's what Ananias's fault was in those next verses. But listen, if you're new with us here today, we talked a little bit about money if you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, please know we are not interested in your money. We want you to know the power and grace of Jesus. So the only thing that we ask you this morning is to receive. To receive this powerful message that it might transform your life from the inside out. I could name so many in this church who have been a Barnabas to me personally or Barnabas to others in our congregation. And this type of radical generosity is only made possible by the Spirit at work in us. And just like Barnabas, we as a part of this family are called as we are able to give in these ways that we might be a unified people that we might be a people with a powerful message who are marked by sacrificial generosity. May we be a church that these characteristics ring true today as much as they did thousands of years ago, empowered by the Spirit that we might love and serve one another. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask by Your Spirit that You would help our hearts be one. That You would help us to hear about this generosity that's described in the early church. And that we might not be motivated out of duty or obligation, but out of power of Your Word and the beauty of Your sacrificial generosity on the cross that enables us to share everything we have with our brothers and sisters. That there might be no needy among us. We pray that that might be the reputation of this church. The characteristics that we are known by as a family of faith, unified, generous. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.